Right, I've honestly tried to record this about seven times. There's either the doorbell goes off or there's some drilling next door or something really, really disruptive happens every time I go to speak. Seems like Universe doesn't want me to introduce Josh Bednash to you. Why it wouldn't want that, I don't know. Josh is uh, the assistant coach for Crystal Palace under 15s. He's a PE teacher at school in North London. Um, and excitingly, he's just joined the Coach's Voice, who do some wicked breakdowns on uh, on games online. Really, really recommend you check them out. He just did Liverpool Leipzig second leg in Champions League. Really, really enjoyed that. Josh, uh, pleasure to speak to you. Really appreciate your time as always, and hope to catch up with you soon. Do you know who? Do you know actually? And I'm looking at you. Who? Who you look a lot like? That we, me, and Ethan said the other day. You know. Um, is it Neto for Wolves? Oh my God! Everyone's telling me this. You look exactly like him. Very good-looking man, by the way. So you take it as a compliment. I, but you look exactly like him. I think I'm getting that three or four times a week at this point. Really? Yeah. And it's always like it's always either just after Wolves have played or like yeah. just after the game's kicked off. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know, that, you know that number seven for Wolves? I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny yeah you look yeah. the spitting image of him it's so weird <laughs> do you remember when the the Premier League highlights were not on BBC for a bit and they were on ITV and it was called the Premier Wait, League someone just, someone just sent me that it's the best video I've seen in, in months <laughs> do you know the first bit of it is Sol Campbell doing like kick ups yeah it's really? so weird it's unbelievable I love it it's like Jamie Beattie on a billboard <laughs> yeah, I know I know and it, and it and the bit where the bit where it goes Touch me is Burkamp doing the spin against Newcastle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. It's so, it's mate, that, that intro is so many memories. I was looking over your A license project again, and uh, I wondered if you could uh, maybe expand a bit on what you mean when you say principled football. There's a bit where you're talking about like your influences, and you're saying watching Arsenal football is like exciting and beautiful and principled. Good question. I don't know why I would have written that. I changed my opinion week to week, so <laughs> doing anything. In fact, someone asked me this recently. I think I, I think what I would have meant by that would have been potentially structured. Um, and fun, and I and Arsenal, I think, haven't fallen into that bracket for numerous years. And someone actually asked me this recently on a on that podcast I recorded, and it was sort of like, what um, just the difference between watching some teams and watching other teams. Uh, and kind of what you gauge from it. Like, again, there's no right or wrong of what you do and there's no right or wrong of, obviously there's no, there's no, um, there's no, uh, one's not harder than the other, one's not easier than the other. It's every, every coach out there is doing a fantastic job, obviously at the top level. Um, but just in terms of like when, how you watch games and what you take from games and what you, um, what you're able to kind of learn from games in terms of like patterns that, that emerge. Some teams obviously have patterns that emerge throughout, through from game to game, where you can see distinct patterns continuing week to week. And maybe you can see teams that are more kind of structured positionally or structured in how they press or structured in, in set pieces. It could be anything. And I think there are obviously a lot of teams that, that it's a bit more random. I think as, as football kind of, kind of, tipped over into this age of the last two or three years and since Guardiola came to the Premier League I think it's become a lot more structured in, in, in the different phases whether it's high pressing mid pressing 
um, building up from the back, wherever it might be, wherever it might be. I think a lot, most teams are becoming a lot more structured now. But I think when we were growing up, um, definitely when we were growing up, um, it, it was completely different. And I, I was watching. I watch. I, there's a website where you can watch old games on. So sometimes when I'm bored during lockdown, just watch like an old game. I was watching Arsenal be Liverpool from like 2003, and it's just like a basketball game. There's no the football is completely different then. And obviously you've got some unbelievable players and unbelievable coaches. It's just the way things have it's just periods of time, right? Periods of periods of like you can't say an artist before technology before technology and after technology are better or worse. It's different because of what's available to them. But um it's same in football, I think it's not there's no one one not better than the other, but in terms of like what you can back to your question, the like principles of it, what you can learn and what you can take. There's less you can probably take from a learning perspective, or like build on, or read into, or use. See patterns emerging from teams in those eras. If you watched that, that Arsenal team, obviously were one of the best teams ever, and um, it's, it's it is like a basketball game. You win the ball, kick it to Henri Vieira, and it's just gigantic spaces to drive into. I think one one area of teams' development in the last probably three or four years, is like how to stop the counter-attack. I think Guardiola did a lot of work on that when he went to Germany, because it's very counter-attacking league. And in that, there's a book called Pep Confidential, I don't know if you've read it, it's really, really, really good. Um, and they speak about like when he went to, to his two, when he went to Bayern Munich and when, when he left. And when he went to Bayern Munich, he, he basically was like, it's the most counter-attacking league in the world. I have to learn how to stop the counter-attack being a dangerous part <clears throat> of other teams' games, and then I can then I can win the league with my with my positional passing game. So that trend, which I still think a lot of teams struggle with, um, but that trend uh, has just changed football massively in the sense that it, it's if you're attacking, you tend to be sustaining attacks for quite a while, and if you're defending, you it's, it's quite hard to counter um, because teams are able to stop counter-attack in a much more kind of so you structure it so you're defending whilst you're attacking. 15 years ago, that just wasn't happening. So you win the ball back and you kick it and then the back four is still like 30 yards out. And they're like, they're staying because the, the idea was if you have men behind the ball, it's a better way of defending. So it's just suddenly oceans of space attacking to. But um, it's a very long-winded answer to answer no, no, the question. Great. I think you, you see it now, even if you were to go and watch like a random Sunday league game, You'll see, mm. you'll be able to tell the teams who are like confident and who regularly play together from where their defenders are on the pitch when their team has the ball. There are teams who have so literally glued to the halfway line because they've been told mm. there's an offside line on the halfway line, that's your reference point, mm. and they just stand there. Um, and yeah, the, the, and, all, and, all, and all four of them as well, it's all yeah. four defenders. <laughs> yeah, and you can just say to, to any attacker, just go and stand in front of them and see what happens. If, if someone follows mm. you, then they've probably been told, oh, you, they're going to try and mark you 1v1. If they don't follow you, then you're going to have space the whole game. The whole game. Well, exactly. I think the interesting thing about, like, I think counterattacks are very interesting because it's sort of, there was, there was for a while, like, an idea that counterattacks just happen and you can't stop them. And then Real Madrid won the Champions League the, in the first year under Ancelotti, just counterattacking. It's like crazy. Beat by Munich 4 0, I think one of the legs, I think, in Munich, and just counterattack, counterattack, counterattack. And then I think from there, Obviously, Liverpool um, a few years later, but now I think from their teams have sort of said, okay, we need, like, we need to find a way to stop in this. There needs to be a way to stop this. And then, and then you've, got, you've got some players who've, who've, who have uh, 
who need to who can who in a, in a team other other players that will like stop the counter mode. So like when Basaka at Palace was a really example because he he would like stop counter to happening almost on his own. When Palace had a had a corner or attack, he would just kind of on the especially on the left, he would just go into the into the middle of the of the pitch. Any counter attacks, he just stopped, but he was so quick and could defend it. Um, and the thing is, most most counter attacks originate just in that space um, outside the penalty box. Like we had a, on, when I went on my lessons, we had a guy, the goalkeeper coach for England under twenty ones and head of goalkeeping. Um, Tim Dittmar, who was really, really, really interesting, did a really good um, presentation on set pieces. And he said that um, amongst all the best teams in the world, uh, not necessarily the best set piece teams, but the best teams in the world who also do well on set pieces, they tend to bring all of their players back. And there's a correlation between those teams all bringing all of their players back from corners. One, to defend the corner, but then two, if you do that, you have more space to attack into, to counter-attack into, to start that counter-attack just sort of on, on the edge of the box and then really launch that counter-attack maybe in the space where maybe third one and third two begins just over that line. And then you've, then, then the third thing, right, which is really good, is you've got players who come back to defend, but they're actually launch players. So maybe Salah and Mane will be um, just in the corner of the penalty boxes. So they, as the corner's about to be taken, they sort of drop back in case they need to win the header. And then as soon as the first contact's made, Fabinho, Van Dijk, whatever it is, they launch and the counter-attack then starts with you having control of the ball rather than if you have three players, you leave three players up there on the halfway line, then if the goalkeeper catches the ball, it's headed away. To make the pass from penalty box to halfway line is a really hard pass for one. It takes longer for two. And it becomes a duel. It's like it's harder to control. So if you if you launch the counter by having control, then now you're in control of that phase of playing. And if you watch counter attacks, counter attacks are really hard to stop in general. You've got top top players going at top high high speed, and they've normally got an overload. They're probably going to create a chance. So it was really interesting. And if you watch Liverpool, there's loads and loads of examples of them just getting all their players back. Salamane flick on, and then they're just gone. What would you say are the, like big differences between the different academy environments that you've been in? The first difference, the main difference, is just it's just the facilities and uh, money. I suppose they have available to them. Obviously, work, I've worked. The, I've been at Barnet, Brentford, Oxford United. Uh, I say Brentford. Well, I wasn't actually employed at the academy. I was right at the start of my coaching journey was in the development centres and was lucky, lucky enough to shadow some academy coaches um, on occasion just before it, it closed down. So coached the development centres there and then did a few, helped out, sh- shadowed, helped out, shadowed a few matches, a few, um, one or two training sessions and then the academy shut down. So I didn't have much of an experience there, but the experience I had there was absolutely fantastic. Like the best possible learning you can have for your first experience of academy football it was just amazing in terms of um the culture they they had created and the staff you're around and the players you're around honestly and, and you see where those players are where, now where their staff are now it's just un- unbelievable what they had there at that period that, that crop um anyway so then i went to yeah barnet and oxygen united and um and palace and it's and they were all really fantastic experiences i suppose like i said the more when you're at a Premier League club, think the facilities that you are, are open to you and the the provision that's open to the players is there's a lot more for them to work with. It's a lot harder for, t- for clubs um, lower down the football pyramid 
um, to maybe attract players, to, to keep players, um, to, to to compete with, to, to find the right. You know, it's, there's a big challenge for Cat Three clubs is facilities and in this space. And we were, at times at Barnet, we were training on like a third of, of an Astro with an age group, and sometimes even half a third. You've got six age groups on one Astro sometimes, one, on one 3G pitch. Again, great learning experience to make a session for 20 under 10s on your own. We, we didn't have assistance all the time on your own, on a th- half a third. Great. Or even a third of a third. I remember a few games, actually a third of a third at Barnet. To look back on now and laugh, but that's that's the nature of it. That's 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 what sometimes is, is like down there. But it's a great experience to learn at. The best experience to learn at, in my opinion. Uh, the best environment to learn at, I should say, in my opinion. Um, you, you have to, you, the demand is high. The quality of player you're working with is high. The quality of staff you're working with is really high. You're learning tons. And you really need to perform as often and as best as you can. And also the work rate is difficult. You're working early to late and you're driving and et cetera, et cetera. So it is it's challenging, but it's really it's a really good um, kind of learning experience. And then... Um, at the end of the spectrum, Crystal Palace working in the Premier League club is is um, close to how you'd imagine it in terms of our facilities. We're still a bit, we're still working on our facilities, so we've been around different facilities over the last three or four years. But we've got a new state of the art facility being built now, so it's just provision is just it's just it's just quite um, it's just seamless. Often how things are provided to the players, there's the SNC and via psychological um, well-being, which is now happening as we become Cat One. Um, syllabus, the coaching, it's just it's just quite a seamless space you've got. We have a whole 3G on a Saturday morning for just our age group, which is again amazing, and we're very very lucky in that respect. Um, and then and then Oxford was a great Oxford was a great experience for me in terms of again really hard work because I was going after school. I worked in a school in North London, drove up uh, to Oxford at night to coach a session, and then drive back, did a bit of analysis or gym help not. I didn't do the gym obviously to sort of like support it, support it or watched or whatever I could do um, and then drove back that night so and then went to work the next morning so it was obviously difficult and and, and but it's, it's a, again a great experience Oxford United we've learned loads there um, a different sort of player in terms of uh, different skill set to a lot of London based players different growing up environment so have to flex and flex and, uh, and mould to that and help those players how they need how they need helping but um, the work ethic um, there was unbelievable. The the, the vision there, the, the academy manager there is fantastic, really really good, and um, I think they'll they'll really go places both the club and the academy. Um, I've learned loads there, and I was in a really great environment. Uh, and then when the time was right, I just moved back to London and, and went from there. But loads of different loads of different experiences in different academies. Um, I guess back to the start of my answer, the main difference would probably just be the facilities and what, what it's given to them. I think clubs do what they can with, with what they have. Um, no, yeah, that's what I'd say, really. And with like, with maybe, I don't know, getting ready for games or thinking about playing styles, playing philosophies, like I've had conversations with coaches who've been in different academies and they've said like, oh, when I was here, I basically had free reign to do whatever I wanted. But when I was here, it was really prescriptive. And it was like, this is how we're playing because the first team play like this. And mm. there was an element, I guess, of, I don't know, certain coaches feeling like, okay, I have to drop 
maybe something that's important to me as a coach in order for me to fit into to this environment um and i wonder between those between those experiences that you had were there were there times where you felt like oh i am i'm in an environment that is pretty much aligned with how i think about football how i think about developing players and were there times where you thought okay this isn't how i would do things in a perfect world but this is the way we do it here so this is how i do it now yeah, I think there's I think there's two answers there. I'd say one would be um, what is kind of what is the right and wrong in with on that on, with that debate. Where do I fall on the which side of the debate do I fall on? I think that ultimately you're employed by an organisation to develop players in the way the organisation sees best. So it's your responsibility as a coach to be flexible to that and develop the players. The, in the way the organization sees best and if you have to leave some of your beliefs philosophies at the door or, or alter them that that's what you have to do it's like if you worked for any major company or any any company for that matter and you wanted to do things a certain way if you if you if you start working for Sainsbury's and you say I want to I want this whole um supermarket to be meat free they're going to say you haven't got a job here so you can't. So I'm a vegan. I want it to be meat free. That's not a problem. So you know, that you need to be able to flex at any organisation. That's just the way. That's the way it works. In terms of player development, I think that like it, I'm reading this book by Damien Hughes, which is called the DNA of a Winning Culture, and it's based around Barcelona. It's probably the best book I've ever read. I highly, highly recommend you read it. It's fantastic. Every page, you're like, wow, underlining stuff is so, so good. But one thing he does speak about is when um, Johan Cruyff went back to Barcelona as a coach, he said that, you know, we've got, um, he, he, tried to, he tried to make all the coaches in the academy coach the same way and build the 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 playing style through the academy that eventually mirrored the first team. I think Guardiola has also said before that you've got one coach who's Argentinian, one coach who's Dutch, one coach who's English, they've got different styles. Um, there's a quite flippant ways of, of categorizing styles, but I think he was just trying to do, trying, trying to make a point. Um, so we want to create the style that La Masia then goes on to play like the first team. I think if you're Barcelona, you can do that. I think that's the only club in the world that can do that, in my opinion, because Barcelona have the most distinct playing style of any club in the world. Um, and they are then able to say, this is how our nines play and we will play like this all the way until we get to the first team. I don't think other clubs have the luxury of doing that simply because other clubs work like normal businesses and they, or normal, I suppose, normal business, normal sports teams, normal franchises where the, the first team are the ultimate marker of success. And the first team, therefore, will change how they play based on the person that's in charge of the first team. And that will continue to change based on results, like how the CEO will change from any major company if they are not, if the results aren't, aren't, aren't good. So Barcelona don't have that. They have the fact that this is the style and the coach will come in to play this style and fit to this style. So that's why, like, that's why you've got Ronald Koeman can just jump in and do be the head coach of Barcelona now when his coaching pedigree doesn't really suggest that he he's ready for that job but he's of the Barcelona DNA he won the won the Champions League in 1992 with the biggest goal in their history and therefore he knows the club and that they can do that 
So my point is that Mo, I don't think that's a viable structure for most clubs because the first team manager changes maybe every year, maybe less. Therefore, you're just trying to create like the best possible footballer at that generic footballer or the best possible footballer that can fit into a team, um, whoever the manager is. And therefore, you need to have a footballer that is that has a variety of skill sets and is very strong in certain skill sets. But those can be different and applicable to each player. Whereas Barcelona will say that, no, these, these players need to look like this. That's why Adama Traore didn't have a career there, because these players need to be this type of player. Like, like I said, I don't, I don't think that's a viable way for other clubs to work, because it's just, it's just, it, it, it's, you, you, if you play, say, the first team manager playing 4 3 3, and therefore every age group plays 4 3 3 and plays a certain blend of passing football. And then the first team manager comes in and plays 4-4-2 and plays a long ball. And you're going to just change that six months later, right? Change the whole academy syllabus, change the whole, change everything, which you, you're then being audited. It's just not possible. So you have to be more flexible. Um, have I, have, you're asking me as well, have I had to change and adapt? Yeah, 100%. And you, that's what you, you learn that as well. I'd be the first to admit that early in my coaching journey, probably was a lot more naive and, and would, would have gone in and said, no, this is how I think, this is how I think things should be done. And, 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 Whereas now, I think that um, I've, as I've gained experience, it's more about um, flexing and bending and working with the person or the people or the club or whoever it is you're working with um, to give a bit, take a bit and, and, and come to a decision together. I think otherwise you don't, you don't really, um, you don't really have a have a chance of making good relationships because you're just going to go. This is what I think. This is how the players should be developed. And also, you're not going to learn by doing that. If you go in and say this is how I, this is what I think this is how players should get developed, you're not going to learn from other people. And as I've and you hear this a lot, as I've got more experience, you realise that you know absolutely nothing, and there's so much to learn. The irony is when you first go in, you go, this is all the stuff that I know. This is all the stuff that I want to try out. And then as you get more and more experienced, and even though I'm hardly experienced, I've only been doing it for a few years, five, six years, you realise that there's actually, you actually know nothing. You have so much more to learn from all these incredibly experienced coaches, players, ex-players that need to be a sponge and take things on. So yeah, give your six pence worth, give your opinion, say what you think, you'd, how you'd like to be, things to be done. But actually you're, you're right at the bottom of the pile and you're right at the bottom of the, of the, of the, of the, of the learning tree. I work with, I'm working with coaches that have played four, five, six hundred league games and managed for, coached for 20 years in professional football, in first team football, in academy football. So I'm there to learn. I'm there to be like, this is what I think. And this is, this is what I, how I see the situation. But um, this is also what I want to learn from it. And this is what I'm seeing here and you're seeing here. And then we, we come to decisions together. Yeah, I think that's probably from the outside looking in, I'd say that's the thing that is most striking about um, any sort of academy or professional environment is like the number of people who are involved in making decisions is just, it's like off the scale compared to anything that you would do with a grassroots or a non-league team. So like a comment about like session design and session plan, match plan and those things, obviously I'm, I'm, I work with the coach around me. Conversations around, so I work with under 15, so the, the biggest conversations in my age group around scholarships. So in terms of the under 16s, those conversations, I'm not even involved in, in those conversations 
officially like i'll give my people ask my opinion i'll give my opinion but i'm well, my point is i'm still some way from being involved in those conversations um so that's like where you want to strive to get to but um there obviously there are a lot of people involved and there's a lot of a lot of discussions and i think the, the main the major difference is just the time you are dedicated to the job so what the coaches that work full-time at the academy and even myself you're discussing players all day every day whether that's on text or whether that's in in person going in two hours before training an hour before training get coffee with someone during the session during the game whatever you're discussing players the whole time so you're always making the discussions and decisions and conversations around players um it's it's it, the rarely a day will go by where you don't discuss how some how one player is doing or how one player is improving or 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 not improving or whatever whatever it is, mm. so that is unrivaled in in other environments, and that's again why we're fortunate. But you're right, yeah, of course, more a lot more goes into it, a lot more. There's a lot, you, you, there's more that's available to go into it, and and again, that is good because you know when you're coaching a team, you need you need someone to bounce off. You need you need you need other other opinions. You need someone to ask, someone to say, no, no, it's, it's, I wouldn't do it this way. Um, you need that, otherwise you, you just make, you're going to make the same mistakes over and over again. Mm. Um, on practice design, do you enjoy designing sessions for a particular opponent? Do I enjoy it or do we do it? Well, do you do it and do you enjoy it? We don't do, we don't do that because we stick to a syllabus, um, a, six week, a six weekly syllabus of each of the six phases of the game. So, I mean, you could, some people might see other phases of the game, but the phases that we, we use will build up from the back. Uh, control and create like mid third, and then create and finish final third. High pressing, mid pressing, low low block. So those are the six phases. We don't do them in that exact order; they're interlinked. Um, and within that, we have like individual development focus, and like a morning, maybe a day before a game, where we prep for a match, maybe a more of a tactical session. Um, but we wouldn't be to, we wouldn't gear towards a specific opponent simply because at under fifteen level. It's a bit of a fruitless, fruitless exercise because every week the other team might have different players. They might have players playing up, players playing down, trialists. They might change their formation. They might, some teams, some academies do like a block where they'll go, we're going to play this formation and we're going to play in a low block for, for, for a week just to learn to use the, the game as like a, an almost exam, if you will, for the, for the week. So they, they, they kind of manufacture a situation on the, on the Sunday. So we don't um, plan or or prepare for a match, so to speak. Like sometimes we know how a team plays. We have the footage from the game. We have the footage from every game. But we know how a team plays. Maybe the 16s have played them as well that, that week. And we say, oh, say, say to the coach or we'll say to the coaches together, how do they play? Um, what formation were they playing? Okay, we'll prep for that. Maybe like 20, 25 minutes of like a tactical at the end of the session phase, whatever it is. Um, but it's not a heavy focus on, on, on preparing for how a team plays. I think to do that, you need to know how the team play. You need a, a number of games of how they played before. You need also need to have a focus and your main priority on winning the game, which obviously ours is not solely on that. Obviously, it's, we want to win the game, but the, the, the overall uh, focus is the players developing. So if we don't win the game, it's not the end of the world. 
um, it, sometimes if you lose the game, it's, it coincides with the bad performance, then then you can have something to address. Um, so I think those are the things you probably need to do that. And, and I think so. I think six six teams do it to an extent, and that's when they're really preparing them for that. So that's like the, that's the year the year where they're really preparing them for doing that more often for the 18s. The 18s do it regularly, obviously 23s, first team obviously will do it regularly. So um, the this is like a more of a transitional phase where kind of some preparation, because the jump between 14 and 16 is huge um, in everything, tactically, physically, socially, everything. It's just massive, massive jump. Like you see some under 14s who are tiny and some under 16s who are literally like men and the difference is just gigantic and that's only 18 months. Um, so we have we, it's a very traditional year under 15 so we need to like prepare them for that but we don't we don't do it because we need to win this game or we know how this team play if that makes sense mm-hmm. my favorite age group is definitely the under 15s it's my favorite age group because it's just that it, you're just you're just close enough to the under 16s the under the current under 16s you coached for well, I coached the current under 16s at 14 and at 15. So I know them really well. And then when decisions are getting made, obviously you, you care about the decision that's being made a lot more than you would if you didn't know the player. You, 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 again, your, your opinions asked for, because you, know you know the boy, you know how they play. Um, you're, 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 you're kind of operating in that upper end of the academy, which, is, which, are, which personally for me, I'm just something I'm interested in. It's, again, you, it's, more, it's more of a, the, the tactical detail you go into to, to contradict what I just said. The tactical detail you can go into is a, is, is a lot more scope as you got up through the academy, um, which again is something that interests me. And it's a, just a great age of like of of person. Fifteen years are so interesting because again I was saying this on, on another on another podcast. Like they're just they're so you know it's like when you're fifteen you're so uncomfortable just in your own skin you just don't know who you are you just don't know your voice is breaking suddenly and like you just suddenly massive or suddenly got spots or you suddenly you just feel awkward the whole time um <laughs> but also you really are really really good at football you're the most popular kid in your school um and there's pressure on you so that like, it's a very very tumultuous age group massively and I, therefore they are being able to offer and provide guidance and provide um yeah just provide you know those, those sorts of um coaching teaching pastoral care, whatever, all the things you've got to do as a coach, as you know, um, it's just a, it's a great privilege and, I, and it's a great age group to work with. Um, and it's, it's, it's just a fascinating group, yeah. The parallels with teaching are so, I find them so funny because the way you just talked about those under 16s now is how like maybe someone who's head of year eight at a school would think about the year. Yeah. Is that, is, is that like, you still think about their development, you still think, oh, there was that kid who, Maybe was good at this, but was struggling in this area. I wonder how they're getting on there. Yeah, it's the same, hundred percent. The like, it does all blur into one. The, obviously, the amount of hours you spend working with these players, and then, and then it's just the next crop. The next crop just go, and then like players that you know at the time you're so invested in, you spent hours working with under eleven to Barnet three years ago, four years ago, and now these players are fifteen, sixteen, and. It's like, wow, I don't know this boy anymore. I don't know that boy, of course, but I spent so much time invested in their development, coaching, working, playing sessions, planning the and then and then you it's just such a fast revolving door. Um but yeah, obviously you do you do uh but again that's the that's the benefit of staying at somewhere for a long time at longevity because 
obviously now I'm, when I see the under 16s at training, it's like, well, you know, you had them under 14, you have that connection, you have that bond and you can have a conversation. And, but now they're like, they're more adult, they're going into under 18s, they're becoming men. So you're more mature, a mature conversation with them. And it's, 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 it's rewarding to, to just be there during that process. Mm. Um, when, um, when we've like talked before, we've like both touched on that phrase, which is they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, and I guess that's like a nice, I don't know, it's a nice way of summarizing what we mean when we say like developing bonds or like investing in time in a relationship or development of a development of a player. The most important thing is that the player in the environment develops. And in my opinion, one of the best ways of ensuring there's development going on is having a connection with the player. In terms of the importance of notion, I think it's absolutely massive. It's probably my favorite quote. It, the players don't care how much you know until they see that you care about them. And there's so many different ways of building that. Um, having worked in a school for five, six years, it's, it's great experience to, to learn how to do those things because you're with children all day long. And there's, there's obviously different ways of doing it, but if you want someone to, to, to more in a professional environment, but also in a school, if you do want to, if you do have children that struggle with their, with, with their behavior or struggle with following instructions or, or, or whatever it may be, then having a, having an understanding of how that child operates is for me, a better way of just being more disciplinary about it, especially because again, I work with, I work in a primary school. You, you don't want to be, it's not right to be, um, to, to, to shout, that's just not how, how, how the best way of teaching is. So it's, it's important to have, understand how that child operates. Obviously it's a very difficult when you've got 30 children in a class, but to understand how that child operates and how that child thinks and, and knowing about that child and having, you know, um, being able to, being able for them to understand that, that you care about them and you care about their development. So maybe you spend an extra 10 minutes with them uh, or with a group at break time doing an extra bit of, of whatever it may be sport when it comes to a lesson then can you stop doing that please because it's disruptive you're more likely to get by and i think you're more likely to get a response and there's obviously there's an argument for well they're in school they should do what you say but i don't actually personally buy into that because you know children um are very are, are complex and have, have loads of different needs and wants and and it's important to be able to understand um how to how to engage with each different child in the, in the best way possible um, in order to in order to help the whole the whole group and it applies to football as well I think in in this day and age we have especially under 15s look they've got a phone which means they can do pretty much anything they want as fast as they want so that the phone I think even holding a phone having a phone being able to go on Snapchat Instagram TikTok and speak to people whenever they want means that if you simply just tell them to do something or tell them this is what I know and therefore this is what you should do. They don't see that as being something they can't acquire elsewhere or something, they, something they're used to elsewhere, being firstly told what to do um, to the extent where their freedom is kind of taken away from them because this gives them um, more freedom than they, than they can ever have hoped for before. Um, and also they can Google things in five seconds. So you telling them exactly something should be done just because you want it to be done like that I don't think is is the way young people operate anymore. And I think that's why Gareth Southgate's had such success at England because he's engaged with that generation of, of it, it's more about understanding the individual, creating a connection with the individual, 
um, and developing through those, developing them through them, those means. Them seeing that you they care, that you care about them allows allows all manner of possibilities. They will run through a proverbial brick wall for you because you care about them. You care about how their school day was or how their family is or this thing you they told you. You say you remember it three days later and go, how did that go? Or let me know how that goes and when when it happens. Just those little those conversations before training, during training, after training are worth so much. They're, they're worth so much, those conversations and those little interactions. Um, one of the biggest ones is that people speak about, it's just like, how was your day at school? Which again, seems very simple, but it's massive. Just even, just rather than players coming in, work, and then go, it's creating that individual, how was your day at school, or whatever it might be. Obviously, it's a simplistic way of starting, but it's a good starting point. Um, then if you get to the point where you're, you're remembering things about players, or you're asking them about this or that, or you're showing them you care about them because you know, you've gone away and you've looked at that. You've looked at the game and you've clicked out certain things because it's just just for that player. I think why he actually cares about me. He actually cares about my development. So when he says, like, you need to work harder, you need to run harder, whatever it might be, you need to stop doing this. Like, okay, I know where it's coming from a place of they're caring about my development. You also got to remember that you don't know where you don't know what these children or these young children, school or older children, what what they obviously it's age appropriate so with older children you've got more leeway there to be to create more more of a, of a connection because younger children obviously they're developing and there's there's obviously things that are appropriate and things that are not appropriate in terms of conversations you're having with the older they get um but you're not going to go to you're not going to go up to a six-year-old and be like asking them about their family or asking them about 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 um who they what they like and don't like at school but with a 15 year old you can ask those you can ask those have those conversations and understand more about the person. Gareth Southgate with England is such an such an interesting parallel because it feels like everyone really likes him, everyone raves about him, and the players that want to be in those environments. But England and England's first team is like the pinnacle of where like results should be everything. But England's results aren't like amazing. The bottom line with England is now part of the the um, total bigger picture, or whatever, but the like, our players enjoying it, being around each other, it, all that sort of stuff is as as important. is is really interesting. Obviously, still riding the weight from um, the World Cup, where that was, of course, the best result we've had in, in years. So they're still riding that wave. I think they're. I don't think it's going to be judged during coronavirus because it's just all such. It's, the games are so bitty, and a lot of them. Not meaningless, but they are basically three guaranteed three pointers. You can only get judged at the next tournament, which when they have it, they'll see how they do. But I, I think, I think there's been a massive change in this in terms of culture and environment. Culture is just the, obviously the buzzword at the moment, but it's, it is huge in terms of. There's a few things there that, that he's, I think, he's done really well. He's obviously created a better learning, I think, a better learning environment where the players are contributing to the learning process. They're understanding what, what the, what the. Um, staff one but staff understanding what they want from what I've read and what I've heard it's, it's a more more collaborative approach which is happening all through the age groups where a lot of younger teams will give their own tactical plan for a game or like uh, your question earlier on preparing for, preparing for uh, games coming up I think a lot of the under 21s and below they do that they, the players do that themselves they have like team meetings where the players will draft the game plan and say this will be things to do blah 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 and they'll have opportunities for that, that to happen within the within the programme um and that's something I think that's something that Southgate has really hammered hammered in since he's come in. Um, I think in terms of just you know a lot of younger players, a lot more, a lot of giving a lot of players a chance, 
different style of football. Um, I think those are all, all things that he's he's been really really good on, uh, and just that care. That, I think that care and that 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 appreciation. Obviously, the crop, the the kind of line or like where you then have to try and assert, flip it back in the right way is over discipline. And there has been quite a few discipline discipline issues with this England squad um, since Southgate's been in. Obviously, those have been dealt with quite well because they now they now seem to be fine. But at the time, they they blew up and quite they in, they happened. So whether they would happen another or not, but I don't know whether under Capello they would have happened because I think the players were just scared, not scared, but there was more of a, like a disciplinarian environment. There's less leeway for these things to happen. That's 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 the the trade, not the trade off, but that's the kind of the the line you're treading with that style of management. I think. Um, but 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 yeah, I, th- I think I think the, the the change in culture, the change of the, the type of player has just been exciting. Uh, you're right. I, I, I think that maybe the results haven't been that good recently, but obviously got to the Nations League um, final, semi final, final I think against Holland, it's a, which which I know is not the most prestigious tournament, but it's a tournament since the World Cup, so. Um, I think it's going in the right direction. He'll be judging them. He'll be judged at the next tournament, I feel. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting what you're saying about the like coaches lower down the age groups having input and meetings and that sort of stuff. When I chatted to Justin Cochrane, who I think is under 15s or 16s, mm. um, he said that they'll have they'll have um, like meetings or like chats before a game, and he'll be like, "Where do you want to play?" And they'll be like, I want to play t- number 10. And like three kids will say, I want to play number 10. And he's like, right, cool. We've got three number 10s today. Um, mm-hmm. And like the the way that players then experience playing in that position, if there's someone close to them, when previously they might have played that position and had loads of space, um, just gets them thinking about um, where, where spaces are on the pitch if we have players in this area. Okay, if we don't have a mm-hmm. left back going to be harder for us to do certain things yeah to be fair yeah actually justin spoke on on, on the aya about about this so i learned a lot from him there in terms of that but yeah you're right it's uh i think their methods are are quite distinct in that way i, I think there's there's um there's loads of there's loads of there's loads of benefit in that i think obviously the the scope they've got is they've got the best players in the country yeah. doing it so there's 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 they can be flexible they can you know, players can try different things in academy football. You've got players that have got um, a period of time in which they need to fulfil, get a contract or a, a kind of apply for a contract in terms of how they're playing. So um, you need players to be playing in a variety of positions, but also the, their best position and also have a team that is kind of performing um with the structures of a, of a team to support everyone else being able to do what they need to do. Mm. Um, but I think there's definitely scope for it to happen in a period of time. Like we spoke about earlier on, teams that do like an, uh, play a low block for a week, you can have like an ownership week or an ownership, an ownership cycle where you players are just in control of team plan and, and adapting in the game and they, and they can do this. I think there's a lot, a lot to be said for that. And I think like one of the main things is leaders and people who speak like I said before, by the under 15s are feeling uncomfortable in their own skin. A lot of them don't want to communicate or speak on the pitch. Um, they don't want to say drop in or get tight or push up or my man, your man. They don't want to say those things because they just feel uncomfortable. Firstly, their voice might break when they're shouting, which is a bit would be, be embarrassing. Secondly, they they just feeling they feel uncomfortable 
telling people what to do or, or just saying their opinion that adolescent brain doesn't really work like that. So creating those opportunities where um, we are creating leaders, we actively creating leaders in that social corner, like that thing that you spoke about with Justin, I think, I think that's that. there's loads and loads of room for that. And it's, it's a really, really good tool. I guess at the other end of it, you've got like a group of friends who are like adults playing grassroots football together where the like number of opinions and the number of people who are happy to shout and yell and say what they think is is like it's the like busiest loudest probably the busiest loudest environment and obviously i'd say i'd say for a while you were like probably the most overqualified grassroots coach in terms of like <laughs> thinking about like okay this is you know all the things that you think about and do on a day-to-day basis and then trying to implement them to um a group of friends who started a football team and, and, and played together, um, like that brings its its own challenges. Um, what what in your experience, what are the the challenges of of coaching your friends? How long how long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> no. um, yeah, I've been in just loads of stuff which I learned from that experience, which was which was which was very interesting. Like as you said, for context. Um, a team who started as a as a as a eleven side grassroots team in two thousand and fourteen, playing at Regent's Park. Um, then, eventually, like I came back from university in two thousand and fifteen, and then me and um, me and uh, another guy who also works in professional football, we decided to kind of take the team together. Decided to move them into uh, a mid mid week league, floodlit league on on 4G with qualified referees and qualified linesmen and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then it became like we're gonna we're gonna actually train and we're gonna take it a bit more seriously and we're gonna maybe bring in players from outside the friendship group and we're gonna have like consequences if you don't come to training, consequences if you don't don't turn up on time in terms of you won't start the game. We're gonna send over set pieces in the day, we're gonna plan for games, we're gonna do all that sort of stuff. We're gonna go and maybe watch the odd team on the Wednesday before we play them the next week, which which we ended up doing. Um, the, 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 the biggest strain was the time it took. That was just crazy. Like added to my normal schedule, then doing maybe going doing training at Palace or Barnet, and then driving to Islington to do a game at eight, with an eight pm kickoff, and then getting home at eleven and going to work the next morning at seven. Like it was just so. I didn't like. I didn't have a life. I didn't have any mates. I didn't have like any anything going on. Um, then you're training on a Sunday and, and coming from Palace training on a Sunday. Then it was the whole thing was just time was my time was so short there in terms of the experiences which were also challenging it's just it's just a completely different ball game everything we've just spoken about goes out the window when you're coaching your best mates it just goes out completely out the window like i i'm coaching my best mate who i've known for 29 years who i'll then go out for dinner with or go to the pub with on a weekend and i'm telling him to do something he's like no i'm not doing that like especially you have dynamics with your friends that you've had for years you you maybe are a certain type of person in the friendship group or you're, you have a certain persona. And then when you go on to the, come in the change room and you try and be your professional self, it's just, they're just not buying it. They're not having it. Um, that said, we had like, especially last season, obviously we, with Corona, we finished, we finished second and then again promoted through that PPG system. Um, so it was a successful season. Um, it, it, everything last year just kind of came to a head in a really positive way. I think, my friends and the other people we'd brought into the team created a good mix where it wasn't just it wasn't just a group only people from the same friendship group so people were 
we had that core social element that's the friendship element where everyone really really cared about each other we also had certain players coming in and being and raising the standards because they wanted to actually play good football wanted to play and train hard and therefore it couldn't just be like a friend friend banter sort of thing um especially if you were losing games and no one liked losing games i think the first thing we like me and ben said like five years ago was people will have fun if they're winning games and if they're playing that's really all they care about and that's really all adults really care about if they're playing and they're winning they're going to enjoy it um so you then got the challenge of how you win games and how you play everyone sometimes those things are actually incompatible you can't win games and play everyone because it's a mixed team so everyone's have mixed abilities um so then you have things like maybe certain train rules where you have to go to training to play games or you say, I'm going to just play the best players when, every single week. But then you have problems where everyone's paying the same amount of money. So if you're not playing certain people and they're paying the same amount of money as someone's playing every game, is that fair? So then th- there is so many challenges there. I think the best thing, the be- the best thing was making use of everyone's voice and creating an environment where there were certain people who are the most important, important socially um, in the group and maybe important in terms of happy how people saw so their importance was was bestowed on them by the way other people saw them so whether that was from a social perspective or because they were really really good getting a mixture of those people together allowing them to kind of formulate the discussions and giving them the biggest voice possible and then me maybe just kind of having the not the final word but just piecing it all together because they then went off and did their day jobs and i then thought about todo and then put it all together and then then use that on the pitch that had the most the most buying, and that idea came from that book, that Barcelona book, the DNA, the Damien Hughes book, which was the two most the two most important things about motivation that gauge motivation are having a sense of purpose and feeling like you have a voice. Those two things, which it says in the book, are the two most important ways to be motivated. Drove drove everything I did that year because we built a massive purpose, which was. We are more than just a football club. We do charity events. We do, um, we have a big social side. So there's the two things, charity events, social side, and then we create a women's team. So we now have a much bigger focus than just a mates team. So now people are like, okay, I do care about Toto. People are talking about Toto. We, we, they can see us and I'm seeing on Instagram every day and this became a big, big bigger thing. And then having um, people have a voice. And then you had like a captain's group of five or six people that I'd chosen for those reasons like one of them maybe the oldest the most experienced player um one of the most maybe the popular player maybe the best one of the best players maybe one of the most respected players had those players in the captain's group and then you had players in the committee group you had seven eight nine people giving a voice and then you that would create the 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 culture of the club and then from there you can then drive things so then now when you have a firstly when you have any issues you now have things in writing where this is what's this is what will happen if we have issues. There's no grey area around lateness. That's, I think most most grassroots teams struggle with um, picking the team, giving everyone fair minutes, and commitment. Those are the two things I think most grassroots teams struggle with. And I always say to teams that the best you, what you have to do is you have to ensure commitment by rewarding commitment, and you have to have clear clear rules. And the minute you have clear rules, no one no one will argue with them in the sense of. No one's going to question the rules once they're in place, especially when they've been decided by the key voices. If I just come with the rules, people are going to question me. If I allow the five captains to decide the rules, 
And I say, this, these are the rules that you decided, by the way. So if you break them, then you decided these rules. So you're then, not only are you then going to make the rules, you're then going to um, impose the rules. So if someone's late, or if someone is, um, doesn't come to training, or if you don't come to training, you're going to make sure that's clear. So like we had a thing last year, if you don't wear your kit, you do like 10 press-ups. I didn't impose that. That was for the captains to impose. And it did get a bit farcical when they when their like power gets a bit too much. But then you've just got to bring them, bring them down a peg and go, this is like, I'm, I'm doing this because this is going to work. And and then you have that relationship with the, with the captain or the player in that certain way. So it's like, then you start showing them you care about them and you care about whatever it is. But they already know that because you've been their friend for 20 years. So that's so you've got that. Um, but like that, those are the things that I use to to have success there. Um, and and there was difficult. There was times where we obviously just didn't have success. But I think last year was a really really good example of it. Just work, all work in 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 like a really fluid way. But there's look there's the challenges um, ended up being too, too too kind of wearisome for me in the sense that I didn't want to be I didn't want to tell my mate that he couldn't play football on a Wednesday. I didn't want to stand on the sideline and he's standing in the rain shivering and being in for five minutes because I wanted to win the game. I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to have that dynamic with my friends. Um, it wasn't worth it for me. Um, and the, the time elements, those are the challenges. But in terms of what I learned from it, also the final thing I'll say is you'll learn, you just learn how to coach adults. And it's a unique experience. Like adults will tell you, will shout at you and tell you you're wrong or swear at you and tell you you're wrong about a decision, on a, or a decision or they'll call you or leave you five minute voice notes about why they should be playing the team. And adults will do that because adults have a different way of processing information and speaking to people, whereas a 15-year-old just won't do that, especially in academy football. Um, so that was a great experience doing that. And then there's obviously there's times there where you're going, I've learned from this, but now it's becoming a bit too much. I don't actually want to do this <laughs> because <laughs> you're not getting to the bottom of something with a certain player or whatever it is. So, um, but yeah, it was a good experience. Sure. Um, I wonder what your like what would be your perfect coaching role if you had basically a blank slate so you could choose the age group you could choose the environment you could choose the playing style you could appoint coaches who you feel like would complement you um and you could like put, put all those things together like what would what would that look like and what kind of football would that that team play? Uh, great question. I think where I'm at now, I, I, where I'm at now, I think it changes a lot. Where I'm at now, I, I want to work with um, this age group or the age group above for a number of years and just become um, really good and knowledgeable about those, those, the age of player and that type of, and those type of players. So being able to have a team, um, or be like the head coach of one of, of an age group, 15s, 16s, 14s, even um, with an, an assistant working with you. That that's at the minute what I'd really like to do. Um, again, at Palace, you've got loads of scope. Or most clubs, you've got loads of scope to play how you, not exactly how you want to play, but um, you know, put your own spin on things. So you, you've got freedom to do to coach and to do that. You haven't you're not following like an exact blueprint of like you have to do this. You've got to play this every single week which I don't, I don't think would be as motivating. Um, I, you've got, you, you know, clubs, clubs I've been at, you've got freedom to do kind of to an extent what you want to do. So that's, that's, a, that's that would be a great opportunity and a great a thing I'd really, really like to do um, when the time comes. I think uh, long, long term, um, you know, working with an under 18 group 
um, I would love, um, or maybe being in a different in a different role in, in an academy, maybe lead, leading a phase or leading up a department or something like that. You know, in in the distant future, um, I think a lot of coaches uh, I speak or you speak to, you know, they go, I want to work in first team. I want to be a first team coach. I want to be a I want to see you on TV. I want to do that. But like for me, at this time, at this moment in time. I really, really enjoy development. I enjoy working with younger people. I enjoy seeing, going through that process. So that's something that really motivates me and something I'd like to do um, long-term. Um, and and I think also, I, I think there's loads to be said for saying, I really like doing this and therefore I want to do this. And I really like working with the under nines. I'm a specialist in the under nines and therefore I want to do that. Like there's been a massive thing in, in over the years where like being an, under nines coach is worse than being like an under 16s coach but like it's not it's it's in my opinion you're you're a specialist in a certain age group it's like is being a year six teacher worse than being a year nine teacher it's not is it so um i think that it's just you need to do what's best for you what's best for your development what's best for your career what's best for the people you work with and for me at this moment in time that'll be working in youth development phase that age group, those age groups, and then maybe kicking on and working with older age groups much later on. And what what kind of football does that 16s team or that 15s team play? I think the most important thing is principles for me. The most important thing is having understanding the principles of how you play, understanding the principles of how you position your body or where you stand or what run you make or how you press or when you press. If this scenario arises, how do I use my understanding of the hierarchy of our principles to adapt to it do you see what i mean that's that's probably the most important thing for me um i my ideal would be just a team that are in control for as long as possible that's the most important thing so in control meaning when you have the ball you're controlling um the space on the pitch where you can penetrate as soon as you can um but in order to do that you're maintaining possession for as long as possible your positions are interlinking in order to bring the other team into certain areas of the pitch before exposing other areas of the pitch. For as long as possible, you have control. When you lose the ball, you have control. So that may not mean you win it back straight away, but the idea would be you win it back straight away when they're transitioning. But then you may have to go into a into a, into a a deeper block where you have control. So it's, it's you're able to have control of each phase of the game. And therefore, um, I, just in terms of me, I don't think it's as preferable to play longer balls if it's not a kind of controlled uh end game at the end of it so if, you, if, if obviously man city looks to have control and they're doing a long goal kick and there's a three versus three and the profile of the players are so that you probably gonna have control at the end of it then that's the that's the control you're gonna have um for me it's about it's about having control of all the phases as, as best you can that i was thinking one of my favorite man city goals of the uh, Guardiola era is the one in the cup final against Arsenal where Edison yeah. just smashes it to Aguero and he nudges I think Mustafi, Must- Mustafi he, yeah. it's, it's just like it's it's as direct as you can be and it's as efficient as you can be and it's it's like not at all like what you would say is a Man City goal because of what you just said in terms of keeping possession and having control but it's it's so efficient and, and, and Edison's skill set and profile as, as in terms of his distribution and Aguero's skill set in terms of like being able to play on the shoulder of the last defender. All of those things just come together so perfectly to do like the most basic thing in football, which is like 
get the ball towards the opposition's goal as quickly as you can. Mm. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And if you can do that, if you can do that and have control, and then you're you're going to probably have success. Um, if you're gonna if you're doing that and you don't have superiority in terms of positions or numbers or space, then you're not gonna have control. If you have one of those three things or two of those three things, then you're probably gonna like a counterattack, right? It's not necessarily controlled, but you've got maybe a five versus two, so you have numerical superiority, so you are in control. Yeah. Um, finally, what what the Arsenal need in order to to finish in the top four, six? This year. Mm, yeah. yeah, it's funny. I get, I get asked this question loads. I'm like turning every po- every chat I have into an Arsenal chat. I mean, I asked <laughs> um, you didn't ask to. Yeah, yeah. Um, trust and stick with Arteta. And therefore, he needs time. And therefore, he needs some form now to get him for the summer and be able to do what he needs to do with the squad. Um, he's obviously coming in and he has a philosophy and a style and a culture that is completely different to anything the players have seen before. Um, he's got a way that he wants to play, which requires certain players to be able to do certain things. Right now, he hasn't got a lot of those players. He's got some, he hasn't got, he hasn't got a lot. So he needs time to be able to get those players. And the players that he's bought, Gabriel, um, Thomas Partey, Pablo Mari, they're players that play that way, that play that style, that are playing well. Um, so it suggests that when he's allowed to buy his own players, and they're given time, they will, they will be a good team. Um, that's the simplest answer I can possibly give. Cool. Well, let's hope it doesn't happen. <laughs> um, cool. Cheers, Josh. Thanks, Josh. That was good.